Welcome to the Heart of a Friend. I'm Andy Wygand, and this is part seven in a series of episodes on mere Christianity. This book was originally a series of radio broadcasts on the BBC during the dark days of World War II. The talks eventually, compiled into a book in the early 50s, have had a profound influence, not just on Lewis's generation, but surprisingly on every generation since. Many of you may never read this book, but I'm convinced that its perspectives are life-changing. So I wanted to distill what I can and pass it on. Thanks for joining me, and I hope this time reminds you that we are all destined for more than what we've become. Well, the last chapter was on Christian marriage, and it may be no accident that this chapter, the one following, is on forgiveness. It was a comedian that once remarked, a woman that can't forgive should never have more than a passing acquaintance with a man. I think it probably cuts both ways. Uh, The two keys to marriage were the determination that marriage is for life and the determination that marriage is for service. Well, maybe there's a third rail, and that's forgiveness, something that every marriage needs. But a more relevant context for this chapter may be that these radio broadcasts were aired during some of the darkest days of the war. Britain had just been decimated by relentless German air bombardments, the Blitz as it's known. For eight months, the Luftwaffe, at the direction of Hitler and Hermann Goering, had dropped 28,000 high-explosive bombs and over 400 giant parachute bombs on the greater London area. 1.1 million homes and flats were damaged and destroyed. One of every six Londoners had been left homeless. 43,000 civilians were killed. The rest of Europe had fallen. England was the only European country left standing, but the nation was hanging by a thread. There were shortages of everything, Supply lines were being effectively cut off by the German Navy. Imminent invasion by the Germans was still a threat. These may have been Britain's finest hours, as Churchill called them, but they were also her darkest. This was the setting into which C.S. Lewis was asked to speak about Christianity over the BBC. There was raw fear, fresh and profound grief over the loss of loved ones. There was relentless suffering of every variety, with no one to blame but the Germans. In addition, news of German atrocities perpetrated in Poland, rumors of concentration camps and the extermination of the Jews were all emerging. The outrage, hatred, and the resolve to strike back and mercilessly destroy the enemy could not possibly have been any more intense. Imagine the trepidation anyone would have speaking to over a million Brits in the radio audience at this point in their history about the need for forgiveness. I wouldn't have wanted to be in his shoes, that's for sure. It's hard enough talking about forgiveness in our own day. So many people have experienced wounds of all kinds at the hands of others. As a pastor for 40 years, It's been a part of my role to listen to many, many of those stories. I never cease to be amazed at the freedom people feel to share excruciatingly painful accounts of their suffering. 
It is a privilege, but it's also heartrending. So I'm aware that often beneath the veneer of I'm okay or everything's fine, there's a heart that's been deeply wounded in some way. Everyone is fighting a battle. For this reason, I never speak glibly about the need to forgive. As Lewis says, it's a terrible duty. It's no wonder that he begins this chapter by mentioning the unpopularity of this subject. Quote, I said in a previous chapter that chastity was the most unpopular of the Christian virtues, but I'm not sure I was right. I believe the one I have to talk of today is even more unpopular. The Christian rule, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, because in Christian morals, thy neighbor includes thy enemy. And so we come up against this terrible duty of forgiving our enemies. End quote. A terrible duty, indeed. Well, he quickly anticipates audience reaction. He knows what they're thinking, that this terrible duty is hateful and contemptible, quote. They say, that sort of talk makes them sick, and half of you already want to ask me, I wonder how you'd feel about forgiving the Gestapo if you were a Pole or a Jew, end quote. He humbly admits that he doesn't know what he'd do. In fact, he wonders very much what he'd do, don't we all? But he states his purpose here. It's not to tell us what he would do. He's telling us what Christianity is. And at the very center of Christian ethics is this call to forgive. And I have to echo this right here. I certainly don't know what I'd do either in their situation or what I'd do in your situation. What is clear is what Jesus teaches about this subject. So my focus here will be to interact with what Lewis says in Mere Christianity. For more on this subject, though, check out my previous podcast, episode 18, Set the Prisoner Free. There I do my best to explain how as we forgive others fits into the Lord's Prayer and the Christian life in general. Of course, there'll be considerable overlap with this episode. But what's at stake here? C.S. Lewis pulls no punches. We don't really have a choice in whether or not to forgive if we intend to be Christ followers. Quote, Forgive us our sins as we forgive those that sin against us. There's no slightest suggestion that we are offered forgiveness on any other terms. It is made perfectly clear if we do not forgive, we shall not be forgiven. There are no two ways about it. What are we to do? End quote. Well, these are challenging words, to say the least. But he's simply echoing the words of Jesus. Not only the words of the Lord's Prayer, but also Jesus' additional comment at the end of the prayer in Matthew, quote, For if you forgive men their transgressions, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your heavenly Father will not forgive your transgressions, end quote. So these two things are inseparably linked. If I'm unwilling to extend forgiveness to others, then I cannot expect God's forgiveness in my own life. The stakes are high here, very high. Now, if this reality is making you squirm a bit, you're not alone. 
His next comments help to relieve the tension he's created just a little bit. Quote, when you start mathematics, you do not begin with calculus. You begin with simple addition. In the same way, if we really want to learn how to forgive, perhaps we had better start with something easier than the Gestapo. One might start with forgiving one's husband or wife or parents or children for something that they've done or said in the last week. That will probably keep us busy for the moment. End quote. Yeah, this makes a lot of sense. Baby steps in the right direction are a good idea. Start with baby steps. These are steps we can take that are a lot less intimidating than forgiving the Nazis. He spends the rest of the chapter helping us understand both what is forgiveness and what it's not. He also shows how we can move forward toward fulfilling this terrible duty. I'll be back in just a few moments with some of the most important points. Here are some of the most important points C.S. Lewis makes about forgiveness, the terrible duty of every Christ follower. Forgiveness is not just an emotion. We may feel repulsed by somebody. Lewis uses the example of self-love. Sometimes we can feel disgusted by our own actions and loathe that part of ourselves that makes us do what we do. But fundamentally, we still love and care for ourselves. So forgiveness does not necessarily involve our emotions. Quote, We must try to feel about the enemy as we feel about ourselves. To wish that he were not bad, to hope that he may, in this world or another, be cured. In fact, to wish is good. That is what is meant in the Bible by loving him, wishing his good. So forgiveness is not just an emotion. Forgiveness is not minimizing the offense. Forgiveness actually begins by taking the full measure of the offense in the first place. We do not need to minimize the offense by excusing it, justifying it, or ignoring it in any way. Quote, A good many people imagine that forgiving your enemies means making out that they're really not such bad fellows after all. When it is quite plain, they are. Christianity does not want us to reduce by one atom the hatred we feel for cruelty and treachery. We ought to hate them. End quote. So forgiveness is not an emotion, and it's not minimizing the offense. And forgiveness is not releasing the offender from the consequences of his actions. Now, there may be times when we do forgive a debt, forgive a hurtful word, or forgive a broken promise, and life and the relationship can go on as before. But there are other offenses where it may be best to allow the natural consequences of the offense to play out. It may be best for a spouse to forgive an unfaithful spouse, but nevertheless, proceed with a divorce. It may be best to forgive an employee for embezzlement of funds, but nevertheless, allow prosecution for recovery and other appropriate penalties. It may be best to forgive an act of violence, but nevertheless, allow the legal system to apply the appropriate penalties. This is the point Lewis makes here. Punishing those who are wrongdoers can be appropriate, especially 
when the offense is covered under the scope of the law. For instance, in the case of murder, quote, it's perfectly right for a Christian judge to sentence a man to death, end quote. I'm sure he would also agree that it's appropriate for a teacher to fail a student for poor performance on a test, even though the teacher must forgive the student. I'm sure he would agree that even though an employer should forgive an employee for non-performance at work, at some point the employer may still have the responsibility to dismiss the employee. After all, this is the way God relates to us. He does forgive us for whatever, but most often we must live with the natural consequences of our choices, even after we've been forgiven. Some people think that forgiveness means treating the person as if what they did had never happened. No, no. Forgiveness doesn't mean that. In some situations, it's impossible. The offender may have died. In other situations, we put ourselves at risk all over again, especially if the offender has no remorse for what they've done. So in many cases, the relationship can never be the same, even though we've forgiven. There are consequences for our actions that can't be undone. Forgiveness does not mean we release the offender from those consequences. So if forgiveness is none of these things, if it's not a feeling, if it's not minimizing the offense, if it's not releasing a person from the consequences, then how does C.S. Lewis define it? Well, here's the closest he gets to a formal definition. Quote, Something inside us, the feeling of resentment, the feeling that wants to get one's own back, must be simply killed. We must feel about the enemy as we feel about ourselves, to wish that he were not bad, to hope that he may be cured. In fact, to wish his good, wishing his good, not feeling fond of him, nor saying he is nice when he's not. End quote. So it's more about what's in our hearts than anything else. In the end, there are two sides to the forgiveness coin. There's the passive side, letting go. This is choosing to surrender your right to anger and retaliation. This is choosing not to hold the offense against the perpetrator any longer. This is choosing not to rehearse it. This is choosing to remember it no more. This is what Lewis means when he says we must simply kill our resentment and desire for revenge. This is the passive side of forgiveness. The other side of forgiveness is more active. This is what Lewis means when he says we must hope that he will be cured, to wish his good, not necessarily feeling fond of him, but wishing his good. It may begin with only a prayer for the other person. It's whatever step you're able to take which extends some measure of goodwill toward the offender. If you're able, a card, a gift, or an act of service, speak well of the other person if it can be done truthfully. This is the active side of forgiveness. Again, both the passive and active sides of forgiveness are about a change of heart more than anything else. Now, Lewis gets realistic here. He explains this at the outset of this chapter. In the middle of World War II and its aftermath, this kind of forgiveness seemed out of reach. Nevertheless, this is what is at the center of Christian ethics and can't be ignored. 
It helps that he does say this at the end of the chapter. Forgiveness is not always instantaneous. It may take a lifetime to resolve all the residual issues related to forgiveness. It's a process. We're battling resentment, anger, and the desire for revenge. Payback. Quote, I do not mean that anyone can decide this moment that he will never feel it anymore. That's not how things happen. I mean that every time it bobs up, day after day, year after year, all our lives long, we must hit it on the head, end quote. Of course, some offenses are trivial and forgiveness can happen in an instant, but other offenses are so devastating, it'll take a lifetime for recovery. I believe that God is more concerned about our direction than our perfection. Once you've made the decision to forgive and started taking baby steps in that direction, I have a hunch that God is pleased. Forgiveness cannot always be instantaneous. Sometimes it's a journey that can take a lifetime. Lewis admits this is hard work. At the end of the chapter, he adds one more thing that I think really helps. Quote, Perhaps it makes it easier if we remember that that is how he loves us. Not for any nice, attractive qualities we think we have, but just because we are. For really there is nothing else in us to love. Creatures like us who actually find hatred such a pleasure that to give it up is like giving up beer or tobacco. End quote. Sidebar here. C.S. Lewis very much enjoyed his beer and his pipe. But this is how God loves us. More about that in just a few moments. So where do we find inspiration and hope for what seems like an impossible task, a terrible duty? As Lewis said, this is how God loves us. He forgives us. His forgiveness is both passive and active. It's passive. He doesn't hold our sins against us. The Bible says he remembers our sins no more. He casts our sins to the depths of the sea. Think about the Marianas Trench in the Pacific Ocean, seven miles down. He casts our sin into the depths and puts up a sign that says, no fishing. He chooses to remember them no more. This is the passive side of forgiveness, but he also chooses to show us his favor. That's active. He changes our status to that of his sons and daughters. We're adopted into his family. He promises to hear our prayers. He gives us the gift of eternal life. He blesses us with every spiritual blessing. In the ages to come, he'll continue to demonstrate his goodness to us. This is active. And this is the model we're given to follow. As Paul put it, forgive one another just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God. So where's the line? Is there a line? Are there sins so dark, so grotesquely inhumane that they are beyond the reach of God's mercy? Are there depths of human depravity that are beyond God's grace? Are there sins so horrific that we too should never be expected to forgive. It was Corey Tenboom who said it. She and her sister were victims of a Nazi concentration camp. 
Corey survived, but her sister did not. She reflects upon these questions and gives this answer, quote, No pit is so deep that God is not deeper still, end quote. This is how God loves us. When we've experienced this kind of love ourselves, the challenge to forgive others looks far less intimidating. The story of Jeffrey Dahmer made the headlines back in the early 90s. He was known as the monster from Milwaukee. Eleven corpses had been found in his apartment. It was discovered that he had murdered, dismembered, and also cannibalized his victims. The world cheered when he was sentenced to life in prison without parole. But still, not enough punishment for this sadistic killer. What continued to be disturbing for many was that Dahmer became a born-again Christian in prison. He repented for his crimes, was baptized, sent letters of apology to his victims' families, and seemed to have a genuine change of heart. Predictably, most people were skeptical. Others argued that God would never forgive such a monster. What happened next was even more surprising, though. He asked to be released from solitary confinement and wanted to be part of the general prison population, serving as the chaplain's assistant in what he called his mission field. He knew that this was probably a death sentence. He survived one plot to kill him, but later was beaten to death in a prison restroom. The controversy was still not over, however. The prison chaplain told reporters that he believed Dahmer was truly saved and was now in heaven. The debate that followed revolved around questions we've been asking. Does God really forgive sins that are so horrifying? Can the families of his victims and the nation learn to forgive as well? Well, how did God love us? While we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. The Lord laid on him the sins of us all. It was my sins that crucified Jesus. My pride, my self-centeredness drove the nails into his hands and feet. My greed and lust pierced his heart. My apathy pressed the crown down upon his brow. My dishonesty slowed his breathing until it stopped. My anger scourged his back, tearing his flesh. My fears darkened his soul to the point of despair. I crucified him, and you did too. To forgive us was hard for God. It cost him everything. Is it too much? for him to ask us to forgive others. After receiving this forgiveness, his forgiveness, how can we deny forgiveness to others? Because this is how God loves us. Here's the thing that should keep us all humble and open to fulfilling this terrible duty. Anyway, it works for me. At various times in my life, I've been reminded just how much of my own heart has been twisted and corrupted by sin. My thoughts, desires, emotions, ambitions, words, and actions. I know that self-centeredness, pride, fear, anger, greed, lust, dishonesty, laziness, envy have shaped my heart to one degree or another. I think I'm getting better, but every so often God peels back another layer and exposes something new, and I get a fresh glimpse of my own depravity. Once again, I'm led to the cross. Once again, I'm led to confess my shortcomings. 
Once again, I'm led to plead for God's continued patience and mercy. And when I hear of others who've fallen into some sin, I'm once again reminded how easily it could have been me. There, but for the grace of God, go I. It's this repetition that keeps me humbled before God. It's this repetition that makes me reluctant to condemn anyone else for what they may have done. I have a sober understanding about what I'm capable of. If God can keep the door of forgiveness open for me, I have no choice but to keep the door open to others. One of the Beatitudes says this, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Let me just say, I'm desperately counting on it. The biggest problem with unforgiveness is that we burn the bridge across which we ourselves must travel. No matter how heinous our crimes might be, no matter how dark the stains might be on our lives, God forgives us. But when we refuse to extend forgiveness to others, we undermine the ground upon which we need to stand before God. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. There can be no double standard in God's family when it comes to mercy and forgiveness. So forgive one another as God in Christ forgave us. As difficult as it may have been for C.S. Lewis to deliver this message on forgiveness to war-torn Brits, it was necessary and important. We really have no choice if we expect God to forgive us. As he said, it's the way God loves us. It's the way God loved the Germans. It's the way God loved Jeffrey Dahmer. It's the way God loves me. It's the way God loves any sinner, no matter how dark their past when they come to the cross of Jesus for mercy. It's at the heart of Christian ethics because it's at the heart of the gospel. It's my prayer that whomever you may need to forgive, you will find the grace to do so. Before we can become all that God has destined us to be, we must learn to forgive. Well, thanks so much for listening. I hope you'll join me for the next episode in this series. It's one of the best-known chapters in this book called The Great Sin. Here, Lewis deals with the sin of pride and the corresponding virtue of humility. Lewis gives us one of the best descriptions of humility in describing a humble person, quote, he will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking of himself at all, end quote. Highlights and notes are available at the end of this episode. And if you'd like to keep up with future podcasts, please consider subscribing. Remember, we are destined for more than what we've become. This is from the heart of a friend.